And because it is Resurrection Sunday, once again, he is risen. You know, if it was not for the resurrection of Jesus, we would all, every single one of us, be without hope this morning. And sadly, there are many people who have looked for hope elsewhere and have been let down time and time again. Without hope, there is only despair. Hopelessness is tragic. It is a silent killer to the mind, and it is a cancer to the soul. It leads one to ask, is this all there is to life? The question quickly leads to thoughts about death. And if someone is hopeless in life, they are also hopeless in death. It is a fearful thing when a man and all his hopes die together. The Bible says that when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. That's Proverbs 11 and 7. The Bible also says the hope of the godless shall perish, Job 8, 13. Well, let me give you a spoiler this morning. The main idea of the sermon that you're about to hear is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is hope that never dies. That is a grand amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. The title of the sermon this morning is A Living Hope. We're taking a little detour this morning from our study in 1 John, and we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning. If you would open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, just a few verses this morning, but to honor the public reading of God's Word, if you're able, if you would rise to your feet as we read the text together. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Please be seated. Quick background, which is being written here by Peter. He's writing to those who are suffering, suffering greatly in Rome. And he begins by encouraging them that they have a living hope. Hope. What is it? This hope is full assurance It is not uncertain desire. It is unshakable confidence in God's promises. It's not wishful thinking. It is disciplined waiting for the things God has promised. And as we unpack this living hope that believers have, we'll look at four points from this text this morning. First point we're going to look at is God's mercy towards sinners. The second thing we'll look at this morning is God's supernatural work in sinners. Thirdly, we'll look at God's guarantee for sinners. And lastly, the result of all that, we'll look at God's praise on sinners' lips. 
Four things we'll look at this morning. If you would, look back to your Bibles with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at verse 3 again. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice what Peter writes here. He says it is according to his great mercy. So you need to stop and pause and ask yourself, what does mercy have to do with our hope? I mean, if you ask many people to describe God, many will immediately speak of him being loving. And while he definitely is a loving God, we cannot separate his love from his other attributes. To name just a few, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He's omnipresent, means he is everywhere. He is eternal. He is the self-existent one. He is immutable, meaning he is unchanging. He is sovereign in control of all things. He is just, and he is also holy. I want you to stop this morning before we go too far. Stop and consider a God who knows everything, who sees everything, who knows our thoughts and our motives. Stop and think upon this God. A God who has full knowledge of everything we do and say and think. And a God who is holy and just. A God who can by no means clear the guilty. Well, if you stop with me this morning and you ponder a God who sees everything, you would agree with me this morning that we are all guilty and we are all in trouble. If this is what this God is all about, about complete justice, apart from anything else, as we'll learn this morning of what he's done through his son Jesus, but just being just and holy, we're in trouble. We have sinned against a holy God. And we've done it over and over and over again. Some of you might say, well, you don't even know me. I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as some other people. Do you know our sinful nature has an elevated, elevated view of itself? You know, we always pick people who are more sinful to compare ourselves to. Well, I'm not like them. I'm not as bad as that person. Sorry, I wasn't pointing to you guys over here. <laughs> but to get an accurate view of ourselves, we don't listen to our hearts, which are deceitful. We listen to God, who is truth. And God says this. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We read that in Romans chapter 3. Some of you are like, man, I thought Easter was a celebratory morning. It is. But this is the foundation. The foundation is the way that God sees us is he sees sin. And yet... Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people that he would call his own. A people that would also sin against him and be deserving of his perfect judgment. But God chooses to have mercy 
upon his people. Not because they are deserving of his mercy, because they are not. But because he chooses to have mercy upon them. God speaking to Moses said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We read that in Romans chapter 9, verse 15. The Apostle Paul continues to write in verse 16 and says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Oh, how we need the mercy of God. There is no other way than for our God to be merciful and to have compassion upon us. Mercy means to show kindness or concern for someone in serious need. And oh, how we are in need. We need a merciful God. Listen to the parable that Jesus told. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So he's saying one is a very religious person and the other is a sinner. And he said, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Remember I said we have an elevated view of self? Here it is. He goes on and says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. These are the words of Jesus. We're in need of mercy. Oh, how we need the mercy of God. And without the mercy of God, there is no hope. We are by nature destined to eternal death, and are restored to life by God's mercy. This idea of mercy, that, that we need the mercy of God, segues right into the second point this morning. The second point, God's supernatural work in sinners. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 with me. Again, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice how Peter pens this. He says, he has caused us to be born again. Well, first we see that there's a need to be born again. And we see here that Peter writes, only God can do it. He has caused us to be born again. We, we learn about the necessity of this re, rebirth or this being born again in, in a conversation between Jesus and one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, Jesus has this conversation with him. And Jesus says this, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus replies and says, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus speaks of the new birth. Theologians refer to this as regeneration. It's a supernatural work of God through his spirit. And apart from this new birth, we cannot be saved. Jesus equates being born again with being born of water and the spirit. So what is that all about? And man, there's a lot of different teachings on that. And it's all over the place. But we stay safe and true to God's intent when we stick with the Bible interpreting the Bible. And so when we look back to one of God's promises to his people through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, we read this. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, if you're a note taker, I want you to jot that down. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Because I want you to look at that passage again later as homework and see how many times God refers to himself. Who is the active agent in doing this? It's God. He says he will do these things. He will cause these things to happen. What is he speaking of? Regeneration. It's the new birth. This is how we receive a, a new heart and, and God's spirit within us. It is completely a divine work. We as humans contribute nothing to it. Just as we are passive in our natural birth, so we are in our spiritual birth. The Bible makes it clear that natural man is not merely impaired, but he is dead in trespasses and sins. The natural man being spiritually dead cannot produce the new birth in himself. God is the active party. He causes us to be born again. The new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. No one can come to him unless it is a work of God. Why don't you stop here this morning? Do you have salvation in Christ Jesus? Has the truth of the gospel been opened up to your eyes. Why? Not, I'm sorry to tell you, because you're a genius and figured everything out. It's because God in his mercy has graciously opened your eyes and my eyes to this wonderful truth. He has given us new birth. A.W. Pink put it this way. He said, no sinner ever comes to Christ until the Holy Spirit first comes to him. Paul summarized this in writing to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, he saves us. Stop and behold the glorious gospel. Jesus died in the sinner's place and took upon himself the sinner's just punishment. 
as our substitute. Christ suffered God's wrath against sin that we might receive God's righteousness of his own accord. And in full obedience to the Father, Jesus surrendered his life on behalf of others. The perfect obedience that God required for his creatures, Jesus fully gave. Stop and ponder. It's finished. It's complete. In bearing our sin, he went as a substitute and made full payment to God for all our failures and all our misdeeds. Listen to these words of our Savior. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 11. He again says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Jesus now calls sinners to repent and to believe. But we must understand that sinners are not regenerated because they first repent and believe. Rather, they believe and repent because they are first regenerated. He saved us, which means he gets all the glory. And he will share his glory with no other. The new birth is God's supernatural work in sinners. Again, turning to that, returning to that same verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. You might have it memorized by the time you leave this morning. Read it in its entirety again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It has been wonderfully said, the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, it is finished. The resurrection was the Father's seal on the completed work of Christ. The resurrection was a declaration of the Father that the last enemy had been conquered, that the penalty had been paid, and that the condition on which life was promised had been met. When God raised Jesus from the grave, we were given great assurance that Christ's death was sufficient in making satisfaction and atonement for our sin. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation of the Christian's hope. Many of you woke up this morning with a smile on your face, rejoicing and being reminded that the tomb was empty. And because the tomb was empty, you have a living hope. The resurrection is the act of the Father as a judge and the Son as a conqueror. It demonstrates again that the Father accepts Christ's penalty as full payment for our ransom and that he was victorious over death. He's victorious over the grave. He's victorious of, over all of our spiritual enemies. But it's also assurance that we too will rise from the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our rebirth would be impossible and our hope would be meaningless. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. 
He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If it wasn't for the empty tomb, we are fools this morning because Christ is not who he said he was. But the tomb was empty and he is risen. He's not there and he is living forevermore. And the Bible refers to him as the first fruits, as the firstborn from the dead, meaning that his people will also rise in a resurrection like their heavenly Lord. Our living Savior shares his new life with us now and promises us a fullness of it in the future. This regeneration is what brings us living hope. Because we have a living Savior. He has risen. He has conquered death. And through him, we too will be raised to a matchless inheritance. And who has done all this? He has. It is finished. It is complete. It is God's supernatural work for sinners. Which brings us to our third point this morning. God's guarantee for sinners. Yes, we're making it a little bit farther than verse 3, but we're going to read it again. Verse 3 and 4 and 5 this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because God is our Father, He has adopted us as children, which means we have a full inheritance waiting for us. The best is yet to be. Now, some of you might have familiarity with an inheritance if you've had to work with someone's last uh, will and testament and gone through and maybe you're an executor of a will. You know that what is in that will is designated to those who it says in that will. God has promised to us that he will raise us up to new life, that we have an inheritance that is guaranteed the Apostle Paul puts it this way, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Far better than any earthly inheritance. Far better than what anybody else could leave us. It transcends any inheritance possible in this life. As children of God, we have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's incorruptible. It's immortal. It's also undefiled. It can be never morally defiled. It's pure and it's untainted and it's unfading. It'll forever retain its beauty. It is kept in heaven for you. It is a living hope. It's not wishful thinking. 
Paul, writing to the church in Corinth again, said this. He said, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. Speaking of this inheritance, the inheritance of eternal life in a resurrected, glorified body. Now, I know some of us quickly think of that because as we rolled out of bed this morning, we had some ooh and ah getting out of bed. Now, while this glorified body will not have that, there's so much more to it. So much more. It is one that is not susceptible to death. It is one that is not tainted by sin. It is one that never loses its strength. It's one that is perfected in every way and forever. That is our inheritance. That when we see that the tomb is empty and Christ was raised, that we have an assurance, a guarantee of this inheritance. Oh, beloved, we have a living Hope. And this hope, this inheritance cannot be stolen and it cannot be lost. And why? Look again at verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who's guarding this? Is it us? It's God. God's power. He is protecting it. This word right here in the Greek where it says power, in the Greek, it's a verb for a military term. And it can mean either to protect someone from danger or to prevent someone from escaping. See, there's no one that can get in and steal this inheritance from us. And there's no way that we can wiggle out from it. It is protected by the same one who saves us is the same one who guarantees the inheritance. God guarantees it. He who has begun the good work is faithful to complete that good work. I want you to think about this. If we could lose this inheritance, wouldn't you think we lost it already? Ask yourself the question again. If you could lose it, if it was in your power to lose it, do you think you have somehow kept it? I mean, it would be preposterous and hubristic to think that we have securely kept the inheritance by our own efforts. I mean, how arrogant must I think that I have done well enough to keep it? Are you a sinner here this morning saved by grace? Those of you that said amen, I know something about you still. You still sin. And though that is not the trajectory of your life and that's not the spirit that God has put in you, you still have sinful flesh. How arrogant must we think of, I've done this. I've kept this. 
This has to be a work of a God who is merciful. Because we can't. We can't keep it. It's through his power, through his spirit that's at work in us. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, said this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. It's a work of God's spirit. Regeneration, giving us a new heart and giving us his very nature through his spirit within us that would dwell in us, the spirit of Christ that now dwells in us, being the guarantee. This is a work of God. That was Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Paul also writing to the church and the believers in Rome said, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 11. Are you in Christ? Then you are his. And he's done all the work. He has saved you and he has secured you for this future inheritance that is not to be lost. Uh, Listen to the words of Jesus. These are comforting words by our Savior. Jesus said this. He said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 39 through 40. The words of our Savior. The same Savior who said he would die and three days later rise from the dead is the same Savior that says this. It's a promise to his people. He also says this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. John 10, 27 through 30. The words of Jesus that are so comforting that the work that God does, God also secures and he guarantees that God is the one that draws us and he's the one that sustains us all the way through. Guarantees that he will finish what he began. That those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8.30. From beginning to end. The whole thing. This is the work of God. A merciful God. Brings us to this final point this morning. God's praise on sinners' lips. Because we've read it about four times so far this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we now understand why Peter starts off with this doxology, with this praise to God. 
Verse 3, blessed means praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a word of praise. Praise to God. So question, why has God chosen sinners like us to be his children? I mean, have you ever asked the question, like, why me? Typically, you do that after you fall into some sin. You're like, what a wretch I am. Why would God save me? Why would he save wretches like any of us? And I know some of you are here and are very offended by me saying that we're wretches. If we go back to the way that God sees everything and knows everything, it's how he describes it. Why would he save sinners like us? To the praise of his glorious grace. That he receives all honor and glory. That we have no room to boast. Do you know all that we bring to the table is sin? That's it. And surely we're not going to boast in that. But we're going to boast of the fact that he is a merciful God, that he is a loving God, and that he would save sinners like us. The Bible says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. Sometimes we think of ourselves as those who are like floating on top of the ocean, going like, throw me a life raft, you know, give me something. The Bible doesn't describe it that way. We were dead at the bottom of the ocean, sunk, done. But in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we see the word but. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of his abundance of love for those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world, he made us alive to the praise of his glorious grace. You know, I don't know about you, but if you watch any commercials, there used to be these commercials that they were like, but wait, wait, wait there's more. And sometimes they made it in the commercial seem too good to be true. Like, well, is, that kind of, is that really an offer? Is that really something that's going to happen? You know, the gospel, when we look at it, seems way too good to be true. Really? A, a holy God? showing mercy towards a sinful people, a holy God who would send his only son to live a perfect life that they could not live and to die as a substitute to satisfy the wrath that they rightly deserve? Huh? Only a loving and merciful God would proclaim such a thing. That is through the gospel, that through the resurrection and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that sinners can have all their sins forgiven and can be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. 
What do we deserve? How many times has it come off our lips? It's not fair. I know the youth ministry speaks of that often. (laughs) It's not fair. Don't want what's fair. I want mercy. I need mercy. And the gospel is not only good news, it is the greatest news ever told. That through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, sinners can be reconciled back to their God. So what's the catch? Like, like what's the fine print? You know the print like a two font that no one can read? Like, what is that when it comes to the gospel? What is that fine print? Like, what must we do to be saved? I want to read you, God, speaking through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is he declaring there? This is the glorious gospel. God calls us to come and to receive that which we have not earned and that which we cannot pay for. This is the gospel. We come to the fountain of living water, to Jesus Christ, and we drink freely. Jesus calls us to repent and believe, to turn from our sins, to place our trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Jesus speaking to Martha just prior to raising her brother Lazarus from the grave said these words. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 11, 25, and 26. Jesus declared that he is the resurrection and the life, that those who believe in him will live forever, and then asked her the question, do you believe this? If you're here this morning and you have not humbled yourself and cried out to God to have mercy upon you, I urge you to cry out to him now. Have mercy. If you understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, it's only because God has revealed that to you. Turn to Jesus now. Submit your life to him as Lord and Savior. For the Bible says that for everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. All of us who came in here this morning rejoicing, saying he has risen indeed that we rejoice together that the tomb is empty. Together we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him who belongs all the praise, honor, and glory, that we come together because we have a living hope. But our boast is not in ourselves. It is entirely in our Lord our Lord who God has given to every one of us who believe. All those whom he has chosen to believe, Christ 
is Savior. Christ has paid it all. And so for us who believe, realize this, that today things might be difficult. Finances might be tight. Relationships may be difficult. People may mistreat you. Death may be staring you in the face. But beloved, you are not without hope. Rejoice in our Savior. Be strengthened in him. Let the fact of his resurrection bring a resounding hallelujah from your lips because all is well with your soul. May your hope of eternity spur you on to love and good works today. I want to remind you of the main idea of this sermon this morning, that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, believers have a hope that never dies. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for you are a God who is loving and a God who is merciful. We thank you that you have gifted us with faith to believe in your son, Jesus. We thank you for giving us life in Christ and for guaranteeing that we will spend eternity with him. We thank you, Father, that we have a living hope through the resurrection of your son, Jesus. May our hearts and lips be continually filled with praise for you. In our risen Savior's name we pray. Amen.